welcome to The Art of Losing. I'm your host, Julianne Mansky Rollison. I'm a mom to two young children, and like all parents, I'm not always sure I'm doing it right. So last year, I did what many of us do. I Googled. My search for books on motherhood brought up several books I had heard of, and then one that was new to me caught my attention. It was called To Have and To Hold, Motherhood, Marriage, and the Modern Dilemma. And the description read, when Molly Millwood became a mother, she was fully prepared for what she would gain. An adorable baby boy, hard-won mothering skills, and a messy, chaotic, beautiful life. But what she did not expect was what she would lose. This was the book I'd been looking for without knowing how to articulate it. I read it and felt so validated in my motherhood experience by the research cited, but even more so by the personal stories that Molly shared. I created this podcast to explore many aspects of loss beyond death losses, and I am so thrilled to share Molly's perspective on the grief that can accompany being a parent and being a partner. But before I do, I want to acknowledge that there are many, many sides to parenthood and grief. I'm aware there may be people listening who want to be parents and can't be, or aren't yet, or who have lost children. And I plan to include stories that represent you in future episodes. I also want to point out that just as Molly acknowledges in her book's introduction, both her book and our conversation are biased towards mothers who are in committed heterosexual marriages, largely because that reflects Molly and my personal experiences. And with that said, I believe and hope that the themes we discuss are relevant to people beyond the identities explicitly focused on. And I want this podcast to represent a broad spectrum of what loss can be and feel like, So if you would like to share your story, please reach out. Now, without further ado, this is The Art of Losing with Molly Millwood. I am so delighted to welcome Molly to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, I'm really happy to be here. So thank you. A licensed psychologist with a PhD in clinical psychology, Molly has been in private practice in Vermont for nearly 20 years. She combined her two areas of expertise in maternal mental health and marriage and relationships to write her 2019 book, To Have and to Hold, Motherhood, Marriage, and the Modern Dilemma. I want to start with a question about the book's title. What is the modern dilemma that mothers and wives are facing? Well, there's part of me that actually wishes that the subtitle had been, you know, modern dilemmas, plural, (laughs) Um, because there really are so many. It's more like a sort of tangled web of paradoxes and impossible binds that women find themselves in. But I'll sort of zoom out from that a little bit and just say that so much has changed about the way that we are expected to mother. And yet so little has changed in terms of societal support for that kind of mothering. So that I would say encapsulates the dilemma on the whole, that this is what it's like to be a mother to be parenting in, you know, contemporary times compared to in the past, there's such a strong emphasis now on what we might call intensive parenting. You know, we're supposed to basically organize our lives around our children's lives. So many things are different now compared to how they used to be. And yet there has been almost zero change in terms of what kind of infrastructure we have societally to support women who are attempting to parent in this way, while also most often attempting to hold down a full-time job. Right. 
Right. So support has drastically decreased as expectations continue to rise to what I would say is an impossible level for anyone to achieve. When I was naming this podcast, I actually thought about calling it, How Does Anyone Do Anything? Because both in my life and when working with clients, I'm constantly wondering, like, how are any of us doing anything right now with expectations so high and support so low? Right, right. And speaking of support being so low, when I said like societal infrastructure, I'm thinking of things like, you know, affordable and accessible childcare, for instance, that would be really nice if such a thing existed. But ultimately, I think a central issue is the sort of disappearance of the village. You know, the fact that in previous eras of human existence, motherhood was something that unfolded in a social context, usually a very intimate social context, many women kind of coming together to do this thing called motherhood. And now we do it in relative isolation. It's not only a central reason that motherhood itself is now so much harder than it used to be, but I also see it as a reason that there's such an impact on marriage, which was one of the other kind of main themes in my book, like what happens to our partnerships or our marriages when we become parents I think one of the things that's happening is that we're depending on our spouse or our partner to provide what once an entire village provided. And that's an enormous amount of strain on a single relationship that cannot possibly do it all, right? That cannot possibly fulfill everybody's needs and wishes. So, so that I just, I always come back to this idea that the village, I think one of the chapters in my book was something about it takes a village, uh, but but yes. where, where where is it? You know, like, I don't remember <laughs> yeah. exactly what I called that chapter, but it's just non-existent for most people. It's the rare mother these days who feels like she has eight or 10 or 20 people in her immediate surroundings who sort of gather around and who, who are just an integral part of her life in early motherhood. That is not the norm. It's not. As you're talking, I'm picturing us all living in these actual silos, just kind of looking out and believing that everyone else is doing it better. That's right. And then not wanting to share what's happening in our own silo. Instead of having this interconnected, you know, as you said, village, we're all just trying to do it on our own and with our partners in some cases. Right, right. And that piece about sort of looking out and assuming that other people are doing it better, that was really a central reason that I wanted to write this book because- One of my great privileges as a psychotherapist is that I get this window into how people are really doing. And I was hearing such similar stories from every woman I was working with, and those stories so closely resembled my own. Yet everybody has the sense that they're alone, that it's just them who's struggling or suffering, and everybody else has got it figured out. So I felt really compelled. I've got to say something about this. I've got to put the word out that we're all having, you know, almost identical struggles in this terrain. Yes. And in the book, you describe this fantasy that you have, that all mothers could see what you see through your client work. If we could see into each other's lives and bust down these silos, we would have a very different experience. We all try so hard to do it on our own and think that everyone else has it all together. And I'm curious because as a writer and a therapist, I struggle with how much I want to share about my own experience. So I wonder how what we're talking about played into your decision to share parts of your personal story in the book and what happened as a result. Mm -hmm. 
I love that question. It's actually something that I continue to grapple with because I'm working on another book, <laughs> which will have a similar sort of memoir, you know, personal storytelling component. And again, these feelings of self-doubt are creeping in, the feeling of resistance, you know, is this something I really should be doing? Because as therapists, we are trained to be very careful about what we reveal to the rest of the world about our private lives. So I really struggled with that, to be honest. And, you know, as I was writing the book, I felt kind of on fire, like this is so important. It's I, I'm, I'm compelled, I'm going to do this. And then as I was coming toward the finish line and having to face the reality that this was going to be published and be something that people are actually <laughs> reading, that's when so many of the doubts started to arise. And I started to wonder, you know, first of all, if I was even saying anything important. I want to reveal that in this conversation because this is another thing I want everyone to know that that kind of self-doubt is really par for the course with anything we take on that feels important to us, that matters to us. It's not as if we're going to plow ahead and just feel 100% confident the entire time. So even a clinical psychologist like me who felt really, you know, empowered to write a book like this and felt it was so important, I still had to contend with these kinds of doubts about the importance of what I was writing. And also the I guess I'll say the safety in revealing so much about myself. So that did feel scary. It felt very vulnerable. And I think the greatest lesson I learned in that is that that vulnerability on my part was absolutely key to the success of this book, that that is the reason this book is much loved because I did not hide behind an authoritative voice pretending as if I've got this all figured out. I allowed myself to be real and kind of placed myself right next to my readers, like me too. <laughs> I get it. I've been there too. I've had these struggles too. And, you know, the feedback that I've gotten from readers is really powerful because I've had so many people who quite tearfully let me know how much the book meant to them, that this is, it has an emotional impact and it's such an important reminder that there's really no better antidote for shame than to see your own story reflected in someone else's, right? So I was getting this feedback that not only the kind of clinical vignettes in the book where I talk about my clients, but maybe even more importantly, my own struggles, that that was bringing about for people this sort of flood of tears of relief, you know, like, thank God it's not just me. And I feel so normal now and I feel so much less alone. So that vulnerability, I think, is it's a kind of connective tissue among human beings. And we all need to do more of it. And I, I'm so glad I did. I am so glad you did, too. The listeners can't see, but I am just nodding along to everything you're saying. I mean, it's why I connected to the book so much. I agree that it's absolutely necessary to the story you were telling, because I didn't want to listen to a book that was a clinical psychologist telling me what to do to be a better mom. Mm -hmm. I was looking for the personal connection to someone else having this human experience that I'm having. And you gave voice to it in a way that I hadn't heard someone else do. You also underline in the book that we need more of just face-to-face -face connection. We have social media with everyone putting their version of their story out there. But just having a face-to-face, -face, vulnerable conversation with a friend and being real with each other does so much more for connection than these social media sites, you know, that are, some would argue, designed for connection, although often they achieve the opposite. Yeah, I mean, that's really a whole other topic that we could spend hours <laughs> on. It's really, 
you know, the term performative vulnerability is something that has captivated my interest lately because there is this trend on social media for people to be, people are being much more honest than in the past about the struggles of motherhood. And no question that is, that's moving in the right direction, that there's some degree of honesty, but it's also so curated, right? And it's also meant to elicit a certain kind of response from people. Whereas true vulnerability, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. There's risk in sharing something when you don't know how people are going to respond. And I think on social media, of course, there's a little bit of that because they're trolls and people who <laughs> respond in mean ways. But for the most part, you can expect that if you're honest about your trials and tribulations, there's going to be a bunch of comments about I get it. And, you know, you're doing great and, you know, sort of validation and encouragement and support. And it's not the same as sitting in a room with another human being in an immediate, raw way, talking about your experience. There's no substitute for that. There's not. And in a different but similar way, as I listened to the book and had your voice in my ears, I knew that it wasn't filtered. It wasn't curated, right? It was your real experience and your clients' real experiences. And that is so powerful. Mm -hmm. Now, listeners might be wondering why I invited you on a podcast about loss. And it's because loss, although not a topic most people associate with motherhood, is a theme that runs throughout the book. So I want to know from your perspective, what is the impact of framing motherhood only in terms of what's being added to your life? We don't talk about the loss. We don't talk about the subtraction, the things that are being taken away through this life-changing process we go through. Mm -hmm. In the book, I talk about the distinction between pain and suffering. I don't know if you remember that part. So I guess that that feels like a good place to start with answering this really, really important question. <laughs> you know, what is the cost of framing motherhood just as a, a gain as opposed to a loss? So that distinction that I make is that pain in life, whether we're talking about emotional or physical pain, is inevitable. N nobody can avoid it. Suffering is pain plus some kind of resistance against the pain. In that way, you could think of suffering as more optional or more sort of uniquely human. It's something that we tend to do when we are in pain. We start racking our brains about why is this happening to me? What have I done wrong? Why is everybody else seeming to do okay? This can't be so. There's got to be a solution. All of this noise in our heads and resistance in our hearts about what's happening, that's the suffering piece. And so I guess my answer to your question is that I think the cost of framing it only as a gain is that kind of suffering because nobody expects the pain of motherhood. If we knew to expect it, then we would just be able to have the pain of it and we wouldn't have that added layer of suffering. But instead, people are so terribly misinformed heading into motherhood thinking, because this is the refrain in society, that it's an expansion, it's a gain. There's so little talk of all the ways in which we lose things in motherhood and we feel constrictions in motherhood as opposed to just expansions. And so when we have that felt experience, we then start to wonder, what have I done wrong? Am I just not cut out for this, right? That's the suffering. So I think it comes at an enormous cost. And I really wanted to normalize those losses and the hardship of motherhood, the 
darkness, so to speak, of motherhood because it's so airbrushed and, you know, society packages it as something sort of shiny and wonderful that might cause a little temporary fatigue. (laughs) A little while your body won't feel so great and you'll be tired, but then you'll bounce back and everything will be wonderful again. And you'll have this new wonderful experience in life. And it's such a falsehood. It is. It makes me think of the wheel of emotions that includes all of the emotions, but the only one we're allowed to talk about in motherhood is joy, right? It's such a joy to welcome my baby. And it is, but you give voice to all of these non-joy emotions that are also a real part of it, like guilt and doubt and fear. And then because we're not allowed to acknowledge those feelings, shame is this huge overarching thing. So not only are we feeling guilt or fear or sadness, or feeling a sense of loss or resentment, because we're feeling those things, we have another layer of shame about those feelings. That's right. And I appreciate that you're naming that shame because that, I mean, that was sort of implied in what I was saying about all these questions racking our brains, what's wrong with me? That comes from a state of shame, right? Not just, oh, I'm having a hard time because motherhood is taxing and challenging and anyone would have a hard time. Instead, it's I'm deficient. There's something wrong with me. And these challenges I'm having need to be hidden because they're shameful and embarrassing and humiliating. Right. Yeah. Shame makes me think of, you know, I have two boys as well. And I had both of my boys through IVF, through in vitro fertilization. So I'm connected to the infertility community. And I think there's an extra layer there where people think you tried so hard for a baby. You know, you wanted a baby so badly, you can't complain about anything. There's no room to complain about the discomfort of being pregnant Mm -hmm. or about anything that comes after it, because this is something that you wanted, right? Right, right. Yeah. And going back to the idea that social media now involves some degree of honesty about how challenging motherhood is there, as I'm sure, you know, there's also this sort of backlash of people saying you shouldn't have become a mother if you were going to complain about it. Right. As if somehow by choosing something and wanting something, we should only ever feel positive feelings about that. You know, nobody ever says that about, I don't know, a job. Like, well, you wanted a job, so don't complain about your loss. You wanted it, therefore it has to be 100% perfect at all times. I was thinking about how people don't say that about marriage either. Like if you choose to get married and then you go through rough patches with your spouse or you have grievances about your spouse, usually people don't say, well, then you shouldn't have gotten married. People say, yeah, this is par for the course in marriage. It's hard. But somehow as mothers, if we dare to give voice to those hardships, we are shamed for it. We are made to feel less than. Those are such good comparisons that we make room for all kinds of other emotions associated with all of these other choices that we make. And mothers are supposed to love every single minute of motherhood, no matter what, and be doing it well and doing it right, enjoying it and meeting these ever higher standards. And you brought up marriage. And so I'm going to transition to that. Because the book is also about these intimate relationships we have and how those change through motherhood as well. I remember when I first started sharing the book with other people, one of the things that I said to my husband and to all of my friends as I was telling them about it was, you know, this isn't a dad bashing book. It's not about a woman who has a partner who isn't involved in parenthood and she carries the entire load because that's not the case for me or for many of my friends either, luckily. And yet there are still stresses on a marriage that are unique to women in our transition to motherhood. 
and that can be invisible to our partners and really hard, I think, to voice. And so this was another thing that was a big relief that you put words to something that's really hard to put words to without feeling like you're bashing your partner. So I'm curious, how would you describe the ways that loss occurs in our marriages after kids? Mm. One thing that comes to mind is that even before there's a baby, um, they're like, so, you know, during pregnancy for parents who become parents in that way, the divide begins where already during that phase, when a woman is pregnant, she feels a sense of connection to this baby that's developing inside of her. And she feels a strong sense of mother identity already and fathers to be don't yet feel that. Um, That's not my opinion. I'm actually stating that based on research that's been done. In fact, I think I cited that research in my book that if you ask people to sort of devote parts of their identity pie to different things like father, mother, you know, worker, son, daughter, et cetera, you see even during the pregnancy phase when a couple is soon to become parents, you see these big differences between mom and dad or husband and wife in terms of how they're seeing their identities even before the baby is born. So what that suggests is that early on, there's a loss of a sense of unity. Like we are having, I mean, and I don't, I don't want to imply that before there are kids, couples always feel unified on all matters, but I think there can be a sense for women during pregnancy that already they're not quite on the same page as their partners already. Something has shifted. So it's an early loss of that sense of kind of exclusivity and unity. We're on the same page about things like I almost picture sort of, you know, roads diverging a little bit. And of course they're headed to the same place ultimately, which is that they're going to have this baby together, but the roads have gone off in different directions for a while. So that's one of the early losses. There's a loss of equal division of labor, you know, which is another thing I wanted to emphasize in the book is that if even if you've worked really hard as a couple to establish an egalitarian arrangement and you feel really good about sort of bucking traditional gender roles and you've established a solid equitable division of power and and responsibility in your household. Unfortunately, what the research tells us is that when you become parents, a lot of that goes out the window. And you, if you're a heterosexual couple, you're going to revert to traditional gender roles. So that's another yeah. major loss, especially if you worked hard to achieve that. And, the, and you did not picture that once you became parents, things would feel so unevenly divided. That can feel that, like a real blow. Yeah, that is a loss. And it reminds me of a scene in your book where you and your husband, who both work full time and commute together, are coming home from a long day. You have a baby. And if I remember it correctly, as you sit and nurse the baby, your husband is getting food ready for dinner. And if we nurse babies, we're the only ones who can do that. And yet there can be some resentment. Like, I would love to have a moment to go eat something too. And it's not necessarily something that can be easily fixed. It's just a change. You know, like you said, even if everything felt really balanced before, there are going to be some of those imbalances that mothers feel. Right. Right. In that scene, as I recall, he was getting dinner ready for everyone. So he's doing a lovely thing. Still, I felt this resentment, like must be nice to have that freedom. Must be nice to have your hands free. (laughs) Must be nice to be moving about and walking across the living room in the kitchen. You know, these were all things that I felt he had that I lacked and it felt really unfair. And of course... I also had room for gratitude that he was cooking dinner for us. 
it's a good example of the felt experience of new parenthood is just so different for moms versus dads. And there is no way around that. And there is no fix for it. Even dads who are highly, highly involved are still not going to have the same experience as moms. That reminds me of one of the phrases that stuck with me the most from your book. You said that there is a longing or wish under every negative emotion. And I felt that so deeply. You know, you're sitting there nursing the baby and you might have a negative emotion of resentment. And it's because you had that longing for autonomy or wanting some freedom or wanting to be able to do what you want to do in that moment. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a very helpful way to look at it, especially if you're talking to your partner about something is saying, you know, the reason I'm having this negative emotion is that there's something that I'm wanting underneath it. That's right. If we can get in touch with that longing, then ideally we would also give voice to it. And that would really shift the dynamic instead of saying, you know, I'm really angry with you and I'm so resentful. I might say, I just really miss my the freedom that I used to have. I'm longing for that. I'm longing for some breathing room. I want to be the one who's in the kitchen cooking. You know, those are things that you can say to your partner that are not inflammatory. They're not going to, they're going to, if anything, allow for a moment of closeness. Yeah. And that reminds me of another thing that was really helpful to recognize while reading the book, that sometimes women have values that run in stark contrast to some of the demands of motherhood. You know, some of the things we're mentioning, for instance, I really enjoy autonomy and freedom and how I spend my time. And I had a long period of adulthood when I wasn't a mom. So I had those things and those values are really important to me. And so when you work with clients who like me, feel like parts of their identities seem sometimes incompatible with their role of mother or of wife, how do you help them work through those feelings? I think the first thing is that I just say, of course, of course you have parts of your identity that seem incompatible with this new role, because I think it's the rare person, maybe even a non-existent person for whom every facet of identity lines up really nicely with being a mother or even with being a wife or a partner. I don't remember whose idea this originally was, but I know Esther Perel is one of the people who really promotes it, that all human beings experience a kind of fundamental tension between the need for autonomy and the need for connection. We have both of those built into us, every single one of us. So that alone tells us that when we enter into a role that requires us to be in constant connection and constant service to another human being, of course that isn't going to feel good all the time. Of course that need for autonomy and personal freedom is going to be completely unmet for potentially a long period of time. And that's going to cause discomfort, to say the least, if not outright <laughs> pain, depression, anxiety, et cetera. So really what I try to do is just normalize that, that there is no possible way that all the facets of your personality or your identity could line up with motherhood. And it also, this reminds me of a quote that comes from the couples literature. And again, I'm not sure to whom I should attribute this quote, but uh, choosing a partner is choosing a set of incompatibilities that no matter, there is no such thing as a perfectly compatible marriage. And that when we choose to spend our life in partnership with another human being, we are choosing various incompatibilities. Hopefully we choose wisely, right? And those are incompatibilities that we can handle, that we can have open dialogue about. But I think a similar concept applies to motherhood, that when we choose motherhood, 
we need to know that we are choosing various aches and pains. We are choosing hardships and we have to allow them, acknowledge them, face them, and really let them be something that guides us towards what's most important to us, right? So like if you, I mean, you were mentioning that you're a person who really thrives on, you know, having personal freedom, maybe organization, and maybe I'm projecting some of my my own issues because I (laughs) talked about this in the book as well, but I am highly, highly introverted. So I know that my energy gets depleted by being in connection with other people. That doesn't mean I don't like it and find it deeply fulfilling to be in connection with other people. But what it means to be an introvert is that my energy gets drained by interactions with others and that I need quiet and I need solitude in order to get that energy back. Introversion, of course, does not line up very well with parenthood, right? Because we have these little people around us at all times making noise (laughs) and there's chaos. And um, so I had to really come to terms with the kind of misalignment between my introverted sort of calm identity and motherhood, especially because I had people in my life before I became a mother saying, you are going to be the most wonderful mother because you're so calm. (laughs) You have such a, you know, your demeanor is just so sort of balanced and calm. And what people didn't understand and what I myself didn't understand is that I achieved that calm demeanor by spending time in solitude. (laughs) And I lost a lot of that in motherhood. And yeah. That was a real struggle for a long time. So again, I think the most important thing is to normalize it and to make sure that people know there is no possible way to avoid that sense of dissonance between certain parts of who we are and motherhood. The connection you just made for me that I don't think I've ever made in this way before is what you said about when you choose a partner, I think most people understand you're not going to be 100% compatible in every way, right? We choose based on the things that are most important to us. I've never heard anyone say that you're also not going to be 100% compatible with motherhood all the time. And that is completely normal. We don't think it's abnormal in a human relationship with an adult. Like, why would we think that's abnormal in terms of motherhood? So my boys are two and four right now. And after dinner, they like to go upstairs and just jump off furniture and jump on us and It's a lot of energy. It's a lot of physical energy. And in some ways, I'm not compatible with that. I'll do it sometimes, but I know it's not the place that I'm going to shine. And I think that's important that you're giving women permission to say, that doesn't mean I'm a bad mom, you know, because I don't like to wrestle with my boys every night. It just means that is a different type of energy than what I'm going to bring. And that's not what's comfortable for me. And not to say motherhood won't grow us in certain ways. You know, I do more of the physical stuff than I thought that I would do or that I've done in the past. But I also know, like, fundamentally, that's not the place where I feel most comfortable. Right. I relate to that 100%. I'm sure you remember the stories in my book about my boys and their physical energy and the blow by blows they wanted to give me all the time of, you know, what they did, how they shot this Nerf gun in this direction and bounced off the wall and went this other place. And then I jumped from this piece of furniture to the other one. And (laughs) that's great. That's great. You know, like didn't, didn't have any interest in participating in that. Didn't really want to hear about it and sometimes felt guilty for that. But in time I came to recognize that my strengths in motherhood 
lie more in my ability to connect with my kids emotionally or my ability to provide, you know, a sort of nurturing, calm environment for them or reading books to them or, you know, like there are so many different parts of motherhood and we're not going to get an A plus at all of them. And I also, you know, this flip side of what we're talking about right now in terms of how do I help women who feel like certain parts of their identity are not necessarily lining up with motherhood. It's really important to say that this means those parts of identity are not going to get nurtured in motherhood. They're not going to get any airtime or exposure in motherhood. And so we need to look elsewhere to nurture those parts of our identity. I mean, I, I wish I could say that goes without saying, but I don't think it does because the notion that motherhood is all-consuming and involves self-sacrifice, that's the prevailing notion. And so yeah. most women think it isn't okay to spend time or money or other resources on something that's really separate from motherhood. I agree. I do think it's something that needs to be stated. And it goes back to what you said in the beginning about not having a village. We think we're going to get everything out of our partners, right? And I think we're learning more and more that you can't expect your partners to fill every single need that you have or play every role in your life. It's the same thing you're saying about motherhood. There are some things I'm not going to get out of my relationship with my boys, and I'm going to need to look elsewhere to get that sort of connection. And I think the fact that you're giving people permission to do that is really big, because I do think part of the expectations we're talking about is that you spend all of your time with your family. You should love to spend all of the time that you have with your kids. Yeah. And from what you're saying, that's not best for anyone. That's not what's best for me as a mom. It's not what's best for keeping that connection a really good one, because there are things I need to get outside of those relationships. That's right. And it's also not what we want to model for our kids, right? We want right. our kids to see us pursuing the things that matter to us and achieving things outside of our immediate home environment. I also told the story in my book of my own songwriting part of my identity coming to the surface in motherhood and that working on music, working on this book, which took me years. <laughs> those are two big things that took me away from my kids. And I had to wrestle with so much guilt about that. But yeah. wow, are my kids proud of me for those things I've done with my life that have, you know, very little to do with them. I, I was pursuing these things that mattered, that benefited me, that benefited other people. And they, in some ways had to do without me in order for me to do those things. And yeah. they're not resenting that and they're proud. And I like to think that what I've modeled for them is just how important that is so that when their parents, they similarly feel a kind of freedom to pursue things outside of parenthood. Yes, we do need to model that. That's not what we want for our kids, for them to grow up and not have these other things outside of their immediate family. And the story you tell about your music and your songwriting is so beautiful. It's a good transition to what you say towards the end of the book. You know, we're talking about grief and motherhood and loss. And you say that it's through loss that we have the chance to gain. And I'll admit that as someone who works in grief and loss, at first I pushed back from that a little because in some ways it sounded too much to me like the ways that people sometimes push grievers to look for the positive, to look for the gains that you're going to get. But you very quickly explain that's not what you're doing and that if someone would have said that to you in the throes of having a newborn, you wouldn't have believed it or it wouldn't have resonated with you. But with some time and space, you've been able to see that there can be growth as a result of this loss. 
Right. I think it's a metamorphosis. It's an evolution. And in the immediate <laughs> aftermath seems like the wrong word to use, but you know, if you've, <laughs> just, if you've just had a baby and you're really, really struggling to have somebody say to you, don't worry, what's happening right now is actually that you're, you know, gaining quite a lot. And these losses are eventually going to just feel like no big deal. That would be horrible. It would be very invalidating. As you said that, that you had a sort of part of you that pushes back against that. It made me think about like toxic positivity and, you know, the notion that if something terrible happens, people often say, well, it must have happened for a reason. Everything happens yeah. for a reason. Yeah. That's really in no way where I'm coming from. I have strong feelings against that kind of mentality. So do I. <laughs> the, yeah, I think it's so problematic. I do think that, you know, with a, with a long view, which I now have, now that my children are teenagers, I look back and see that so much opened up for me. I almost think of it as sort of like my insides got kind of cracked open. (laughs) And I think it's aligned with what you said earlier about how in motherhood, there's the whole wheel of emotion or, you know, the range of emotion, we're going to feel it all. I've similarly thought about and talked about how motherhood seems to unlock channels of emotion that were previously locked. Yeah. So for me, what that meant is that I found myself feeling a lot of things that I did not think I was really capable of feeling. They were unflattering. I did not like these things about myself. And I'm talking about, you know, feeling rage or like existing in a kind of chronic state of irritability, feeling very on edge when, again, as I mentioned earlier, I was sort of known for being a person who was just always calm, (laughs) balanced. And so there was so much that I was feeling that felt really out of alignment with who I believed myself to be. And that was a big part of my suffering. And the way I've come to look at that is that it was, I was experiencing a loss of illusion about who I was. You know, I fancied myself a person who was sort of immune to these really uncomfortable emotional states and who had infinite patience and that sort of thing. So that's really where I come from when I say it is through loss that we stand a chance to gain because undoubtedly my life is so much richer now and I have so much more forgiveness for myself and for other people because of that loss of illusion, not so much the loss of personal freedom and all the things that were suddenly gone when I became a mother. I don't know that I can put a positive spin on any of that. You know, that was just hard. And, and I'm using the past tense, which one day you will too, when your kids get older, because it really does get easier. And a lot of that personal freedom is restored. So I do, I am not trying to package those early losses as anything remotely pleasant or positive. I think they're really, really hard and we just need to grieve those losses. But when it comes to the loss of illusion about who we thought we were, I think that is a positive thing. I think that opens up so much possibility. It opens so much compassion, forgiveness for self and others. That's really where the opportunity to gain comes in. Yes, that is so beautifully said. You mentioned in the book that no one shows us our true nature as much as our children. And to look at that as a gift of getting to understand who we really are and getting to accept who we really are and getting to acknowledge that those illusions aren't real. It goes back to, you know, letting go of those expectations of how we thought it was going to be and really making peace with how it is. And I think that's what your book did for me. 
It's what your book does for other people. I think it's why it's such a powerful and important piece of work is that it leads us through the process of acknowledging, just saying, you know, there is grief here. There is loss here. And of making some sort of peace with what is actually there, with letting go of those illusions. And once we let go of those illusions, we free our hands up to embrace what really is and to embrace those other parts of us that sometimes we don't want to acknowledge. And that's where the healing comes in. Yeah, that's such a good way of putting it, that sort of image of freeing your hands to actually grasp for new things, for other things. It makes me think about, again, that notion of channels being either locked or unlocked, that we may like to experience happiness and joy and all the positive emotions, but we're not actually going to experience those in full, in all their richness, if we're trying to block out all the other stuff. Mental health, as I see it, and I'm guessing you would agree, is really about the ability to experience what there is to experience. It's about openness to our own emotion, to the joy and beauty of life, to the pain and sorrow and loss of life. So gorgeously put. I'm going to end there because I cannot say it better than that. For people who want to learn more about you, where can they look? Uh, My website is mollymillwood.com, simple enough. And if you go to my website, you can find some other links directly to my book or to my music or my clinical practice, whatever you might be interested in. So mollymillwood.com. Wonderful. And I'm so thrilled to hear there's another book in the works. I will be the first in line to pre-order it. As I knew I would, I'm coming out of this conversation with even more realizations and connections that you have made for me. And I know you have done that for listeners as well. So Molly, I just want to thank you again for this book and thank you for your time. Mm, Thank you so much for your support of my work and all your kind words. Thanks again to Molly for all of the work that she does and for that insightful conversation. I've included links to Molly's website and to her book in the show notes. I encourage you to buy a copy for yourself or for a parent who you love. And if you've already read the book or this conversation has sparked your interest, I plan to lead a discussion group about the book in the near future. So if you're interested, please reach out via Instagram on my website. Those links are in the show notes too. Thank you so much for listening.